Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. Market View on Money FM 89.3. You're listening to Money FM 89.3. I'm Chua Tian with your Market View. Now, in Bali, analysts and campaigners welcomed the final communique from the G20, which urged all parties to make progress on loss and damage at the COP27 in Egypt. Now, while that may breathe new life into UN climate talks, countries seem to struggle to find a common ground on a number of key issues. Uh, that includes limiting the average rise in temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So, what can we expect out of the COP27, which is set to end later today, and how would that affect climate? finance and commodity markets. Now, for more, Roman Kramachuk, Head of Future Energy Analytics at S&P Global Commodity Insights, and Ankit Sachan, Hydrogen Analyst at S&P Global Commodity Insights, joins us on the show. Hi, Roman and Ankit. Well, maybe let's start with Roman. The COP27 conference is set to end today, but countries seem to struggle to find a common ground on a number of key issues. So how do you think talks have progressed so far? I mean, it is set to end, but there still is so much uncertainty. Um, in some ways, this was billed as the implementation COP. You know, we had the Paris rulebook completed. We had lots of commitments made in Glasgow. So the question was, how do we move from all that? And how will we focus on putting in the infrastructure to, to go forward? So we, this was supposed to be the implementation COP. But now it seems like we're, we're struggling a little bit with some of the basic premises. You know, you mentioned there's a dichotomy. We're moving back from the G20 to the COP. And we had the UN Secretary General come back in to urge delegates to come together. Loss and damage is certainly a big issue. Um, I think that was one of the things. It's first of all, it's, it, this is the first time it's on, it's on the COP agenda. So it, the challenge is first of all just to recognize that that this is being discussed, and there is going to be a statement coming out on this front. So that is very important to note. So I, I think that that in and of itself is is, is an accomplishment. The question on 1.5 degree is one of concern. Because in Glasgow, countries were supposed to come up with more tighter NDCs um, for for Charm for, for for this COP27, and they really haven't done so. Less than 30 countries have actually submitted an updated NDC so far. So we're not seeing, and and we what we know is the current commitments will only lead to a 2.4 to 2.6 degrees Celsius uh, uh, limitations on climate on climate increase. So. Lots of challenges here, lot, lots to finish up and uh, right. progress on, on some fronts, but challenges on others. Well, speaking about progress, Roman, a report released earlier this week at the COP27 said, you know, India will now prioritize a phase transition to cleaner fuels, you know, slash household consumption to achieve net zero by 2070. What are the financial implications of the move and which are the segments of the Indian economy that will be most affected by this? Sure. I, I think, first of all, it's notable that India submitted a long-term climate action strategy. Um, I think there's a limited set of countries that have done so, even though that, that's what was requested in Glasgow. Um, it's something that highlights what the targets are, what, 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 what the directions are. Now, I think to understand what the implications are and who's going to be impacted, you need to know, know understand where the emissions are coming from now. Uh, right now, 50% of India's CO2 emissions are coming from the power sector and burning coal in the power sector. So aside from anything else, if you want a strategy of getting to net zero, you have to address power sector coal. That's half of all CO2 emissions right now. After that, we have coal usage in the industrial sector, 15%. After that, we have cars and trucks. So 
what you can see here is that any realistic strategy has to address the issue of, of uh, power sector. And that's key because the, the six elements that were discussed were expanding renewables, strengthening the grid, potential for nuclear energy, for green hydrogen fuel cells, um, demand side measures such as energy efficiency. These all are investments that need to be made. Uh, this comes down to trillions of dollars of investment. And this is where the issue of where does the climate finance come from to address this becomes very critical. Right. And on climate finance, well, Roman and also Ankit, feel free to jump in as well. At the COP27, the European Investment Fund signed investments uh, totaling some 247 million euros to back 2.5 billion euros worth of climate investments. Do you think this amount is sufficient? And uh, which are the types of green initiatives you believe will require those funds? I'll, I'll take a stab at that. I think if you look at that investment from the European Investment Fund, first of all, the key thing is that it's, it's leveraging. It's leveraging that initial investment to, to back additional investments. That's going to be critical for any of the efforts we're seeing uh, at COP and for those to be successful. The fact is the European Investment Fund is really focused on helping Europe meet its own targets. So ultimately, it's a question of, is that going to be enough to help Europe hit their 50 or 55 targets? Uh, can it help deliver European Union's climate and energy uh, targets and strategies? So it's not really going to be helpful in terms of the rest of the world. Now, what areas is it committing to? It's committing to some interesting areas, including the blue economy, which relate to oceans, uh, related to water technologies, related to sustainable food, related to, to more commonly known infrastructure funds like uh, like circular economy, as well as renewables. So um, this, to be honest, it sounds like a big number, but this is not even, even going to be enough to really drive European targets, let alone the targets for the rest of the world. I see. Is there any number that you think would be sufficient off the bat? Uh, off the bat, I mean, we're, we're talking trillions, multi, tens of trillions of dollars to, 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 to get to the level of investments that are needed, for sure. Right, so that's how far off we are. Uh, and well, the ADB Roman and Indonesia, as well as a private power firm, they have also teamed up to refinance and prematurely retire a coal-fired power plant. Based on what we know about the COP27 and European countries' reliance on coal for this winter, can we expect more of such financing initiatives in the coming weeks? I, I think the most interesting development actually that came out of uh, COP in terms of Indonesian coal was the $20 billion climate finance deal that uh, was put together. It's it's very similar. It's called the Just Energy Transition Partnership. And like, like I said, that's a 20 billion, it looks to mobilize $20 billion worth of financing. It's very similar to a sort of, to the 8.5 billion package that South Africa struck with uh, with, develop, with developed countries back in, in Glasgow. And the intention is, is to really let a country that that is internally very dependent upon coal burn, but also very dependent upon exporting their coal, uh, essentially financing them to to push towards renewables, to push towards towards lowering lowering their own emissions and lowering their dependence on the coal sector. So it will be critical. I think the interesting thing here is that we're talking about several year program. Right. Uh, certainly, this is going to be a tough a tough winter in Europe. Certainly, coal is being used. But this is a program that's looking over many years, and we think this is going to be replicated in other countries as well. Right. If you're just tuning in, we're now speaking to Roman Kramachuk, Head of Future Energy Analytics at SMP Global Commodity Insights. Also, Ankit Sachan, Hydrogen Analyst at SMP Global Commodity Insights. 
Well, this question for both Roman and Ankit, what is the outlook for commodities, especially for crude and coal within the next three to five years then? Ankit, you want to start with coal? Sure. Uh, so uh, in our view, I think uh, the elevated prices of oil are going to uh, come down to a more reasonable or sustainable levels. Uh, on supply side, there could be significant growth from uh, non-OPEC producers such as uh, US, Brazil and Norway. And uh, the demand may also uh, be sluggish on the back of weaker economic growth projections. Uh, but any further disruption uh, in the supply chain could derail this process. And uh, in terms of coal, like uh, it, in the short term, it is expected to remain as an alternative to gas supply, uh, gas supply, especially uh, specifically for power generation. So prices may remain elevated. Uh, also, the domestic supply and import requirement from China and India uh, will have an impact on the coal markets. I think that the only thing I would add is that there are two things to look out for, the geopolitics mm -hmm. and the macroeconomics, because right. those will those will dictate what the trajectories. Well, Roman, also, Ankit, feel free to jump in. Indonesia, which is home to a quarter of the world's nickel reserves, it is proposing to create an organization that's similar to OPEC to coordinate supply. To what extent do you think we need such a grouping as the world shifts to cleaner sources of energy? I think it's an interesting uh, development and it's not unique. Um, you know, we've we've heard news of potentially Argentina, Chile and Bolivia starting a similar uh, organization for lithium. And what this really recognizes is that there are new new fuels, new minerals, new metals that will be critical for the energy transition. Um, what they all look for, it's the same thing that OPEC looks for. If you're making long-term investments, you look for price stability. But there are going to be definitely other factors at play because if you think about the concentration of some of these uh, of some of these minerals, top three producers of lithium in the world make up 90% of total supply. Um, top three uh, producers of cobalt make up 75% of total supply. So there's a lot of concentration already. Um, and then there's a challenge that the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States is going to try to make uh, those metals an energy security issue. Yeah, uh, just to add uh, to what Roman mentioned. So uh, nickel, the use of nickel in the batteries has already reduced over a period of time from nickel cadmium batteries to like uh, new chemistries evolving like lithium ion, where nickel is used in uh, very small percentages. So uh, in future, if, if the supply is too constrained, uh, we can move on to some other chemistries, right? Right. Well, Ankit, let's look at what's going on in Singapore. Singapore has announced its national hydrogen strategy. So what kind of change or transformation can we expect to happen in Singapore's power sector within the next three to five years? Say? Uh, so first, a slight background on Singapore's emissions. So Singapore contributes around 1.2% of the global emissions and around 80 to 85% of these emissions come from uh, two sectors alone. That is your power generation sector and industrial sector. Uh, so therefore, it is crucial to target these sectors for long-term decarbonization. Now, uh, to reduce these emissions, uh, Singapore has already adopted a multi-pronged approach, uh, also called uh, four switches. So first switch uh, is, or we can say was, uh, switching from higher emission fuel, uh, such as coal and gas, to lower emission fuel, uh, such as natural gas. Currently, around 95% of the power uh, comes from natural gas. 
second switch is uh, solar deployment, uh, which is currently underway. Uh, Singapore has around 600 megawatt of current solar capacity, and it is targeted to be around 2 gigawatt by 2030. But beyond that, the deployments may be limited uh, due to scarcity of land and uh, limited locations for floating solar. The third switch is import of renewable power. Currently, there is a, a 100 megawatt grid connection with Malaysia. And uh, mm. in the past couple of years, Singapore has imported, uh, in fact, hydro hydroelectricity uh, right. from Laos using that ASEAN grid. And uh, and uh, now the fourth switch is uh, use of low carbon alternatives uh, in which basically the government has included hydrogen. Now, this is, uh, this is the most important switch and it is extremely essential uh, for achieving the long-term net zero targets. So hydrogen offers immense potential uh, in terms of decarbonization. Singapore already has around 85% of power generation capacity uh, in form of combined cycle gas power plants and it is uniquely placed to utilize those power plants uh, by blending 10 to 20 percent of hydrogen with natural gas and mm -hmm. in the uh, and later it can switch to 100 percent hydrogen in the long term uh, to achieve those net zero targets given what we know about singapore's hydrogen strategy how do you think that would affect energy prices here in singapore over the near term is there anything that we as consumers in singapore should be concerned about the utility bills in singapore are already higher than uh, than the normal or in comparison to the pre covid mm -hmm. days this has been uh, partly due to higher gas prices and also due to uh, consumption going up as a lot of people are opting to work from home. So before COVID, the electricity tariff was around 18 to 20 cents uh, per kilowatt hour, uh, which is now around 30 cents per kilowatt hour. So marking an increase of around 50%. So uh, renewable power cost in Singapore is also expected to be higher. And uh, this is because uh, land is a scarce resource in Singapore. and. Mm. Uh, uh, we are mostly deploying floating solar plant, uh, which has high capex and uh, high operating expenses. Right. So uh, Singapore can obviously go uh, big on low cost electricity import, but energy security uh, is important for Singapore and it is a big concern. Uh, coming down to use of hydrogen, our long-term projections for hydrogen indicate uh, prices will continue to fall uh, with the various technological advancements and introduction of economies of scale. And uh, given that we have ample of suppliers in the proximity, uh, so the landed cost of hydrogen may be relatively lower compared to other similar nations, uh, similar importing nations such as Japan and South. Thank you very much for those insights, Roman and Ankit. I've been speaking to Roman Kramachuk, Head of Future Energy Analytics at SMP Global. Global Commodity Insights and Ankit Sachan, Hydrogen Analyst at SMP Global Commodity Insights. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance.